Welcome back. Thank you for tuning in to the Dovision Experience Podcast. This is your boy Frank Nitty. In this episode, I'm on the road again for the Dovision Experience Virtual Tour. This week, I link up with my guys Anthony Miller and Boyd James. We take a deep dive into the current state of America, the death of George Floyd, the police brutality that has taken place during the peaceful protests around the world, the government, how they're inciting violence, where these mysterious pallets of bricks are coming from, and much more. So find your lighters, kick back, and enjoy the show. Also, do your boy a favor, subscribe to the podcast, comment your thoughts, and tell a friend. Now let's get it. Thank you for tuning in to the Dove Vision Experience podcast. This week I'm coming to you with some of the highly esteemed guys that I, I rock with back in the day. You know, I still some of them homies right now. I got Anthony Miller. He coming in from down by coast of New Orleans. Somewhere in Baton Rouge in that area. Then we got Boyd coming back again for another another episode. You know, he up in Iowa where the cornfields at. <laughs> so, uh, and go ahead and uh, tell us about yourself, man. Introduce yourself. Yeah, so um, Anthony Miller from, or now currently revi- residing in Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Uh, originally from Mississippi, grew up in Starkville, went to Starkville High School, uh, then moved over and went to Mississippi State. Um, I guess it ain't a lot about me. I mean, I've, I've lived in some of, and all kind of all over the world, served in the military for a number of years. And so that took me literally around the globe. Saw some uh, really cool cultures, experienced some really great things. Um, but most recently lived in the Bay Area for a little bit over uh, nine years while I was there. Passed the church there, did some uh, really cool things, met some really cool people and just excited to be on. So appreciate you having me, man. Oh, absolutely. And Boyd, I know you, you've been on before, but I want you to just uh, throw something out there about yourself that the people don't know right now. I know you're up in Iowa, like I said, with them cornfields, so it's a little bit different for, you know what I'm saying? <laughs> yeah, I should've let y'all, I should've let y'all see him when I was outside. Um, but yeah, um, grew up in the Mississippi Gulf Coast, uh, graduated from uh, Mississippi State University, came up here in Iowa, I'm at Hurricane Katrina. Ended up staying here um, basically for the past 15, it'll be 15 years in August. Um, so I work as a corporate accountant. Um, and like I, I said on the last podcast, I was on probably going to shift over to um, on my own um, January 1, kind of in the process of doing that now, um, among other things. But glad to be on here. It's a, a crazy time in this country, but you know. I'm glad that I got uh, some strong brothers like y'all that we can talk talk about things and, you know, kind of bounce ideas off of. Absolutely, absolutely, man. You know, like like you said, it was it is a it's a crazy time. You know, we we never thought we'd be in this situation. You know, but reason why we're here, of course, you know, George Floyd lost his life for what I what I consider murder, a public lynching. You know, we didn't get the opportunity back in the day to get those videos of what was happening, but today we have the video on site on you know real time when something happens and when something like this you know horrific happens we can see it and we can't they can't just like gloss over it and tell us you know he he passed away in the, in the, in the police officer car or at the hospital like no we saw it right then you know we also have my Aubrey who who tragically lost his license in Georgia it just at his memorial I think today or yesterday I'm not exactly sure but you know, seeing these type of incidents happening on camera, and then you had to be on a teller situation that you know possibly it wasn't filmed, but we know what happened. You know, police came into the wrong house. You know, shot her, killed her, shot her nine times. 
she lost her life, you know, after her heart stopped uh, pumping. And then, you know, her boyfriend shot, shot back. He got locked up. You know, he's basically defending himself in his own house. You know, if we was in Florida, it'd be standing your own ground. But, you know, he didn't he didn't have the opportunity, but he did get free. You know, so now we have George Floyd, who, you know, tragically lost his life from someone kneeling on his knee for eight minutes and 46 seconds. And so they initially came out that said that the autopsy report was basically trying to blame it on he had underlying conditions and, you know, all this other stuff they try to throw out in the news to try to gloss over, make us think is make us think one thing where we know what we saw. And then the family did an autopsy, had an autopsy done themselves, and they basically st stated that he basically died of asphyxiation, and he's, he lost brain, he lost um, blood to his brain because some because he had someone basically on his neck, you know, for eight minutes, six seconds. So he basically passed away with us watching, and they're trying to say that oh he because of underlying conditions. Then later came out that he had corona, things like that. So when you guys see something like that happening, how does that make you feel as a pastor, as a pastor, and how does that make you feel? I mean, it's, it's frustrating. And I mean, I'll probably even go a step further to say is, is it is enraging in the sense that my, a lot of my job and my responsibility as a pastor is to make sense of things that people feel like, you know, just don't make sense or there's no sense in them. And it's frustrating. It was hard enough doing that in things where are normal in life. But when you have the perspective of seeing a video where obviously these men did not care for the well-being and the life of somebody else and the nonchalant way how everything went down, it's frustrating because how do you then, as, as a pastor, encourage people to be peaceful, loving, understanding, forgiving, and all of that when in that in that period of time, that nine minute video that we saw, none of those things were embodied. How do I have how do I help somebody have compassion for people who don't show compassion themselves? And it's a frustrating thing because it continually happens over and over and over. But just being able to if I'm just speaking on that video, being able to look at how just normal it was for these guys, for the guy to have his his, his knee in somebody's neck, for uh, the guy that was just standing there basically having a conversation, even saying stuff like, well, don't do drugs, folks, and all these kind of things, those, those snide remarks that he was making. It's frustrating to, you know, deal with the fact of seeing that reality, but then having to go back and say, look, you know, we still got to pray for people. We still got to be forgiven. And that's all true. But at the same time, it takes a little while to get to that point where you can say, look, we got to be able to, you know, take this negative experience and turn it into something positive. So it's, it's just, it's crazy, man. It's crazy. Yeah, absolutely. And it's all just raw because it's still going on right now. Right. And we're in time. We know what's going on. We're constantly getting information fed to us via social media, you know, the news, and you try to decipher what's true and what's not true. Right. And, you know, hey, it was like, hey, if you go to the news, you know, it's going to be factual. But now that's not so not, that's not so much now. So you have to go and do your own research. You have to kind of follow the people who are probably on the ground to kind of give you the, the real time information. You know, you have to kind of get with those people who are basically giving out, you know, positive information that you know that's could, that has the right information that's coming out from these cities versus just going on social media and just living by living through the memes and what people are saying. But, you know, boy, when you first watched that video, like, what did you, what, how, how did you feel? Like, what were you thinking when you first watched the video, when you first saw it? 
so so the crazy thing about it is I, I haven't watched the video. Like I don't watch those videos anymore. Um, the last one I watched was was it Tamir Rice, uh, kid that was playing in the park and the police drove up on him, basically did the drive on him or something in the back. Um he was like twelve years old. Um, so I just like that made me like physically sick to my stomach. Um so I haven't watched the videos anymore. Like I don't watch, like I never saw, you know, name anything after Tamir Rice and I think that was in like 2016. Like anything after that, I haven't watched the videos. But you know, it's the same old stuff, man. I can remember um you know, I remember being like third grade when Ronnie King got beat up, you know, and luckily for him, he ain't died. Um, I remember um, being a senior in high school when they had the first black spring break um, in Gulfport and they killed a dude, the police killed a dude downtown Gulfport. I was a senior in high school. Um, and it's crazy because my parents, that was kind of like cell phone. We, I had a phone, but it wasn't like like it is now. And my parents couldn't reach me, so all they had heard was that somebody had got killed by the police. My parents were going crazy until um, I got home. And so, you know, just the the rage that I I felt then. You know, we go down a list of all the ones that all the people that have been killed by police, and then you start talking about like Ahmaud Arbery who was killed jogging in his neighborhood and it just came out that they hit him like a tr- hit him with a truck first right. and it stood over and called him a fucking nigger. Right. Um, it's just, it's just a, 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 you know, it's sad to say, but like, I just feel like it's the same old stuff, man. It's the same old thing. But for whatever, this one hit differently. It was uh, amongst like white people. It was. It was like the straw that broke the camel's back. It's like we got to the we got our cup was there, and it just that one was the one that, that tipped the cup over. And yeah. watching it, necessarily, you know, I don't like I say I don't like watching those videos either. But when you first watched, it, you didn't know what you were watching at first because you know you right. click on the and you just watch. You're like, oh man, this is police. He being, you know, he's just doing using brute force for no reason. And then you continue to watch it. And you just, and you kind of get captivated by what's really happening because you don't, in your mind, you're like, I know he know that he's killing this man because he's telling you he can't breathe. And you're, and you're still watching like, I know he's going to get up at some point. I know he's going to get up. But as you see that he's, he has his knee on his neck, but he also has his fist in his, in his pocket. And what that does, it gives more leverage on the knee to put more pressure on, to put more pressure on his neck. As you know, you, you see, and then you see the guy who's standing over the officer who's standing in, in front of him, who's like, protecting him as he com- commit this murder and you want to like dude where's your compassion as a human being to turn around and say hey okay we got him he's had enough let's let him up you know we got him in cuffs but instead he's just like no stay away and the guys who are actually watching it is like no he, he's dying you can see it and then you just see him pass away and you're wondering like in your mind like what goes through a person's mind to basically suffocate someone in broad daylight. Whereas I almost say like, it's almost like the modern day lynching. You know, they, they, they traded in those capes and those hoods for these badges. They basically go through eight weeks of training. They do all this shooting and all this training and they never shot anything live. So now they have opportunity to go and chase down and beat up and brutalize our black kings and queens. So and when you when you as a pastor or you as being in the military, 
what type of training are they giving these guys that's different from someone in the military versus somebody on a police force? Like, what's the training difference? I think that the difference is kind of how you think about the people that you are trying to police or whatever. So, I th so one of the similarities is, is as I understand it, that need to be the aggressor and have what we would call a violence of force, right? And so it's the idea that if we're going to engage with somebody, then we have to be the aggressor. We had to be the ones that, you know, are trying to get the upper hand in any way possible. That's cool in a sense when you're dealing with being at war, fighting enemies who are literally armed like you are, trying to kill you or whatever. It's different when you are stopping somebody and trying to investigate if they wrote a bad check or not. You know what I mean? So, um, but also it's different when you're dealing with people who are handcuffed, who are, you know, in, in some kind of way in a place where they're at a disadvantage. And so this, but, it, but it's always kind of about this level of control. I got to assert my control over you. I got to show you that I'm the dominant one in this exchange and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And I think that at least as I understand it and, and having been able to do ride-alongs with police while I, you know, have been in different areas and all that kind of stuff. One of the things that's always crazy is they kind of start psyching themselves out and how they're going to interact with somebody before they even open their mouth and have a conversation. So they roll up and, you know, I, again, I'm in a ride-along as a, as a pastor, just kind of trying to figure out, you know, what's going on in my community in Alameda County. And, you know, one of the things that I noticed was the guy was like, yeah, you know, this is a this has always been a bad block. And that may be true, but it's, you know, so you got to watch, you know, because they, they're liable to have this on, they're liable to have that on, whatever. And I and I can get in some ways, you're, you know, them trying to say, let me be mindful so I can protect myself. But that also, in some ways, dictates how I'm going to approach somebody. So if I see a black guy, you know, coming out of this store, dressed like this, you know, all of this kind of stuff, now I'm yep. already at a point where I'm ready for something to happen. So any little thing, I'm thinking, hey, it's, it's go time. And that's the tough part, I think. Yeah, and, and that's, where, that's why I come back. Like, when I was growing up in my neighborhood and we was coming up, the people who were police in our neighborhoods, they grew up in our neighborhoods. So they knew everybody. You know, right. you had officers who patrolled the neighborhoods. If something kind of got out of hand, they call the police and people that you knew would show up. And they'd be like, hey man, you guys need to calm down, you know, blah, blah, blah. And then they would kind of like disperse it and everybody respect him because they knew him. But then as you get older, these guys start to retire out and then they replace them with another workforce where it's more, you know, you have white people policing black neighborhoods. So like you said, they are aggressive. Like when I come up, my neighborhood was really, my, my neighborhood was probably one of the toughest one in the, in, the, in the town. So when you already know the area is actually a tough block, like you said, you know the area tough block. So you come into it already aggressive. Yeah. You jump out. Are, you know what's going on because you this, you patrol this neighborhood every day, so you already know what's they hustling, they doing what they do. But you don't necessarily have to come in there and be busting heads all the time yeah. just because of the authority. And like I said, they have the upper hand because they know if you fight back, then you're going to get more time, things yeah. like that. And then that's how I feel about right now because out of all this protesting going on, you hear your government leading, supposed to be leading with love and you know compassion, but instead they're coming out. If you start looting, we start shooting, basically. Yeah which is crazy. So, it's, boy, wild. 
that's that's yeah when you when you hear something like that what clicks in your mind to make you like where's this guy going with this like what wh- are you really for the people like boy what, like what are your thoughts on that well it's, it's almost you know um it's almost like you're trying to incite a race war uh, but i think that the thing that people don't realize is is that we we really feel like we're at war all the time anyway yeah. um it's, you know we it's almost like we we're in a losing battle as it is um, but you know, we always feel like we always have to keep our eye out for the for the the quote unquote enemy, or we always have to keep our eye out for. You know, I, I think about just the three of us that you know we all got degrees, we all got good jobs, we all take care of our families, right? But like, we still have the fear of driving at night, or you know, it's it's a police office, police station, like two three blocks from me, and. You know, sometimes coming from the grocery store late at night, I'm like, man, I'm, I don't want to ride by the police station. Now, I don't have warrant at first. I ain't got no. I, I might have a beer in the car, or you know, an old beer can, or you know, I ain't doing nothing illegal, you know. But it's always something that's in the back of our mind. So, and what if when when you try to incite, yeah, what's the you know, what if if he can get into my car? if he can, you know, whatever, you know. And so when you start hearing our president, um, you know, inciting, you know, violence towards us, and I say us as a people, um, you know, it's just, it makes it even tougher, you know. And, you know, I'm almost to the point where, like, I don't even want to be passive about it anymore. It's just like, you know, I damn near want to be like, yo, let's, Let's square up, you know, like if y'all feel that way, we feel that way. Let's meet in one of these fields and let's just figure it out, you know. Um, and I know that's not the, probably not the right thing to do. And I definitely don't want to teach my sons that. But, you know, like what, at this point, what can you do? Yeah, absolutely. Um, like, you, you know, don't... when you got the, the so-called leader inciting it. Yeah, because he, uh, he, he's basically, he's, he's locked up in his compound at the White House in the bunker. <laughs> And the world is going crazy because he's calling the governors weak for basically not going out and you know handling their states or their cities and things like that. But you basically give them the now you give the biggest gang in America, which is the police force, the authority to really go out and bust heads now. Now instead of them going out and trying to be you know the peacemaker and trying to slow things down, now they're going out and they're swinging first, not even asking questions. If you out and about and they think you now you cannot even you don't have to have to be a threat at this point if you're just in their way doing whatever you're doing you could have been just delivering a piece of they don't care they're swinging they're swinging the clubs they're putting the, they're putting the zip ties on you they're putting the knee on your back they're putting the knee on your throat they are actually out there they are brutalizing people and they're hitting them with these bean bags what they say are bean bags but i think they're just a bunch of metal with a little piece of rubber probably on it and they're aiming for people's eyes and heads and giving trauma damage they're taking people's eyes out and this is what they're enjoying. You can see some of these officers actually enjoying this. It's like, hey, we've been doing all this training. I now have the opportunity to use these things that I've been training. I can use it on people. I can use brute force and I can just do whatever I want to with no repercussions. Because I've been seeing video after video after video, of, you know, pe- 
officers yanking people out the cars, beating them up, people protesting, you beat them up. Yeah, there's going to be some looting going on, but what you think is going to happen when you oppress people and you keep people down and you keep us in the house for two or three months at a time, you're not getting checked, $1,200 is not going to cover somebody for either between your rent or your food. And when something happens, you of course you're going to go go take some stuff. You've been you've been sitting in the house, you, you're oppressed, you don't have nothing to eat, you don't have nothing. When something pop off, you're, you don't care. People are just being because they're voiceless and now they have opportunity to make their voice heard and you have to basically tear up some stuff sometimes you got to go tear up some stuff and cause some monetary value issues for make people to listen to you and that's what they don't understand and then you hear your white counterparts saying oh why are they looting i can't go to the store and do this so in, down there where you are i know you have you want a mixture down in louisiana you got a lot of the, the you know the backwood rednecks and you got all these different type of people in, in that you're living around like what's the what's the temperature around there where you at i mean it's hot bro i mean it's it's hot because you i mean you got baton rouge which is you know it, it's a it's a it's the capital city of louisiana but it, i mean it's, it's pretty much black right so you have a lot of your suburbs that have the whiter communities or whatever around baton rouge but they come in to work in baton rouge they do a lot of their business and they're shopping in baton rouge but the people that live in baton rouge are the black folks and so it's hot simply because you have basically the folk who are angry about you know what happened with the police brutality or whatever and the other folk are angry just because they feel like y'all are acting crazy and disrupting my life and you couple that with the fact that people ain't been able to go outside in months. So everybody's stir crazy, everybody's ready to get out. And so now, if I'm able to get out now, are you telling me I can get out? And I ain't necessarily back at work yet, but I'm able to get out. So now you got this whole, just it's just like a clashing of worlds almost. And I mean, it's crazy because, I mean, you just seeing people, you know, so you can open carry in Louisiana. You know, you don't have to have a permit or whatever. You can just, just open carry. But normally you don't see people do that. And you know, most people who are gonna carry, they're gonna get their concealed carry license or whatever. When I tell you, I've seen more cats in the last week, you know, black dudes open carrying, like I, I got it. So if you wanna say something, I'm not hiding it from you. I'm not taking it out of my shirt or my pants, it's right here. And you know, and, and got that look like, so if you wanna say something, let's do it. But, but the counter to that is, now you got the good old boys like, I mean, I'm gonna let you know, I got just as much as you, if not more. And so you have this, this whole kind of like delicate balance of anything could make this thing pop off and go a whole nother way, which is really interesting. Yeah, and, and with the and with the, the protesting and the looting and the rioting, they're trying, to, they're trying to shift our focus onto that. It's like, no, that's not what we're doing. This is not the purpose. The exactly. purpose of this is you, are killing our you know, kings and queens on camera and we're not getting just we're not getting any justice for it you know we're having police brutality these guys are getting administrative paid leave mm -hmm. they're getting you know, silent for a little while maybe put on a desk or whatever the case may be and then you know the kind of the story kind of blows over until you hear another story but you never right. really go back visit the, the previous story because these guys may have got suspended for a couple of weeks or a month or whatever, whatever the case may be. It's very light compared to if one of us were to go out and harm, cause harm to another human being where we go to, we go to court and they try to justify, say, oh, hey, this guy murdered this guy. And they be like, well, you didn't see anything. We're like, we don't have to. We just go, we basically gonna go 
let's go through the trial. And if we have anything that could pop probable cause that you could possibly kill, possibly have done this, then we can lock you up. But instead, when we actually see a murder on TV, or well, I'm not saying we see a murder on our screens, everybody, cause everybody looking at the phones, we actually see the murder and like, oh, that's not enough proof. Like, what do you mean that's not enough proof? And that's why we're, that's why we're out here causing kind of havoc cause we're tired of seeing this. And now that this has been going on, people are getting exposed. The people who are, who are were laying low in the weeds and kind of hoping it would blow over or when anytime something like this happened, like companies and people, people of the other race, they kind of like, okay, we're, we're not going to say nothing. We're not going to get involved with this. That's not us. And then you mess around, you say something that you don't have any business. We are, because we don't have anything else going on. So when we see it, we attack it now. Like we call out Drew Brees, we call out Trina, we call out just multiple people, you know, Virgil, you know, Virgil, how could you say something so, so stupid as they're looting my store and bro, you are you you running off white where your stuff is probably twice to three times as much what it should be costing, and you're gonna only donate fifty dollars. I'm like, dude, what are you talk? What are you doing? And then you see a guy like Breeze. That's why. And then you see a guy like Drew Breeze, who was a prominent figure in the New Orleans Saints communities. Of course, he does all his things for the low, but all the time you you you're kind of hiding and she, you're you're a wolf hiding sheep clothes. Like you you going out there, you're doing all this stuff for the communities, but in your heart, you're not feeling like that. And now he's just basically been exposed for who he really is. So, boy, with you being like a, a New Orleans Saints fan, and you want this Super Bowl, and you see his, you see the, the receiver who just basically broke all these records last season, catch all these passes from your guy, and you see this guy come out during this time where it's very sensitive, and you say who you truly, you 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 reveal who you truly are to us, like as a fan, like that. How does what do you, where do you stand with that now going forward with them? Man. Until Drew Brees gone, man, I ain't Saints fan no more. I just, I just, and really, man. First of all, fuck Drew Brees. I don't, I don't know if you need to bleep that out or, or whatever. And no disrespect to you, man, as a pastor, mm -hmm. but you know, <laughs> man, um, I've been a Saints fan for for a long time. Like my whole family, Saints fan. I like y'all know. I grew up, you know, sixty miles from the ones we used to go to Saints games when I was a kid. My dad, my grandpa, my uncle, and my great grandpa were at the game with Tom Dempsey kicked the the sixty three yard field goal to break the record that just got broken like a couple years ago. Um, so that's like a famous picture in my family. But man, forget Drew Brees until he's no longer on the team. I'm not supporting the Saints. I don't have a team. I'm gonna talk to my son. I'm gonna talk to my son. See what team he like, and we just gonna start rocking with them because it's just unacceptable, man. To 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 be so tone deaf and so disrespectful and so so fly with it. Where you know, even after he came out and said the things that he said, and then he came back with that apology. He still ain't said nothing about you know. He's like, oh, I'm sorry if I offended you. Well, what about the damn police? You you not said anything about police brutality. You not said anything about Black Lives Matter. Any of that. And so, you know. But I will say this. Um, the good thing, if there is a good thing, if there is a civil line, if there is anything positive that can come from Trump's, Trump being president, is we smoking these boys out. We we yeah. gonna know where you stand. We gonna know. Yeah, right what, now. What side you on? You know, you on this side of the road or that side of the road? Ain't no oh well this this and the third. No, you either either with us or against it. It's not any like gray area for that. It's it's you know. 
it's all you know I, I don't want to say it's all black or white but you know but it is like it's, it's either you rocking with this or you're not it's you know um it's just you know it's just a shame man like we all had young kids it's just a shame that we te- you know, have to teach them the same stuff that our parents have to teach us, that their parents have to teach them, that their parents have to teach them. But, you know, one, one thing that maybe we can say is better than our generation is that, you know, we smoke them out. We know, we know where they stand. Yep, yep. And, and like, I was, like you're saying, man, like, you know, with the Drew Brees situation, they basically scold this cat for coming out and, you know, being ahead of the curve and talking about this police brutalities and, and Drew Brees kneeling during that time. Then he put the blackout post on Tuesday. And then you basically come back with something like this, like you're never near for because of your grandfather. And you like, dude, you think your grandfather was the only one out there? You think he wasn't no black guys out there fighting in, in, in the war as well too? We just want to recognize for none of that stuff. But like I say all the time, the winner write the rules and they, they winner write the history. So whenever we have things go on, the winners gonna always come out, the winners come out with the history and they writing the, writing the rules, they're writing the laws and people like Drew Brees, he basically, you know, he probably grew up down there and that, that's that, that mentality where his grandfather's like, hey, I stand for this, this is what you stand for, this is what we teaching. But because he had to integrate into the league and into the, into the sports of college football and all this time, you have to kind of play the game. But at some point, the, the 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 sheet come off your head. We're gonna figure out who you are. And like I said, with this Trump administration, it basically is separating people. You can't hide anymore. It's like if you're not saying nothing now, we know where you stand. We won't and what we have to do, we have to get our black dollars and we have to support our black people. You know, we have to pull that money back that we're giving all these white corporations and they just funneling through they to getting their getting their houses and their boats and their trips and all that type of stuff. We have to go give it to our black community leaders. And that's how I think one of our one of our weak points that we don't have those those leaders like we used to have. Like we anytime we have an issue, we always revert back to what Malcolm and, my, and, and what Malcolm and, and, and Martin was doing. I think, you know, that's a, that's their time. That's what they were doing. Like they were hitting the streets. That's what they had to do in their time. But we're in a different age now. So I feel like we should have, you know, more prominent leaders who are leading us in a different form, in a different way. And, and with you being a pastor and I know something, you know, you're, you're a man, you're a leader of men. Like, how do you see us going to the next, our next um, stage with this protest? Like, what do our leaders have to kind of get us on page to do with our money, with our, you know, our training? Because we're not trained to do anything. We just like, that's why we're protesting with no control because we have nobody leading us say, hey, this is what we're going to do when we go out. You know, so as a leader, what do you suggest that we do going forward as a next step? Because we can't just keep walking, marching in the streets for 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years at a time. That's true. Uh, in my opinion, I think it starts at being selfless. So if, if you look at kind of the example of Martin and Malcolm, they they were more about helping others than it was about promoting self. And I say even in the sense of they they had the type of brand or notoriety in their day where they could have been in a place where they could have leveraged that to make it more lucrative than they chose to do. Um, not to say that they were just dirt poor, but they, they, they didn't use their celebrity or their notoriety to get for themselves. Whereas because we're in, especially in our culture, in a, in a place now where we're very entrepreneurial now. So it's about how can I take what I got? This, this, if I get 15 seconds of fame, I'm gonna start doing t-shirts, branding, all kind of stuff and figure out ways to use that and stretch it as long as I can 
versus using my voice to make a difference for somebody else. So it has to start with being selfless. And I think even in, and one of the things I'm concerned about, even in this time that we're in over the last week, these riots and all that kind of stuff, a lot of people, if they feel like they're personally satisfied that they did this or they were, you know, in one of these cities and a part of that, once they get their own personal fulfillment, then they're gonna kind of fall back to the norm of what they normally do. So we don't have those leaders that'll say, if I don't ever make a dollar, if I don't, you know, if I'm not able to sell my music or whatever it is that I have to offer, I just want to be able to help people and in my in this demographic be better and see equality, see people be treated fairly, all these different things. We got to find some leaders that are truly selfless. Like I have an issue with you obviously using your voice and your celebrity do that to, to bring light to issues. But then I have an issue with you wanting to say that you are a leader in a community and you're living in a well-off gated community where, you know, the vast majority of people, 80% of the people that you say you're representing are either living paycheck to paycheck or living below the poverty line. There, there's some disparity there if you're saying you're gonna lead my community and you don't even live in my community. So that's one of the things I think that it has to start with kind of being selfless in my mind. Yeah, what, where do we find these people? Like, do they just, because normally we just, they just kind of pop up. You like, they pop, they get a following, and then we kind of like attach ourselves or we watch, and then we eventually, we, we move with them. But what are these, like, I, I've never known anybody to just say, hey, this is something that I'm really passionate about. I'm going to go out and do this. We don't normally see that. They just kind of like, like, like I said, we just see them pop up on social media. They have a big following, and then when something happens, you, you see Jesse Jackson, he just pop up. But right. you don't. We don't, you know, saying Jesse Jackson. That was, you know, that was that was in the past. Like we understand that he did what he did in that time. But we need our leaders in this time that knows social media, that knows how to use YouTube, that know how to use, you know, Instagram, Facebook, Snapchat, whatever. We need people who can lead us in this social media era. And I think that that's where we're lacking. That we lacking with leadership, and we have to find these leaders who are, like I said, selfless, who are not about the dollar. They have to be about the people, you know, have to put them, put the, put the people before themselves. And sometimes we don't quite get those type of people because now it's all about how can I, like I said, it's how can I make a brand out of this? I want to be a brand. Like, how can I brand this to be, you know, how can I grow this? How can I make money off this? How can I profit from this? Whereas our people are not being able to, you know, like I said, they're living below the poverty line and things like that happening. And so when I see this happen, I'm like, man, like, who, what do we do? You know, we're so confused and we're so lost. And whereas the other side, they are tactically trained. They they have leadership. They have leadership, so they know they're prepared. We're not prepared. We just kind of live in day to day. We don't have much goals. We're not coming together in those in those moments when they're when things are actually down or peacetime, supposedly peacetime. We don't we're not coming together and talking about say, hey, if this happens, we need to be ready and we need to mobilize because as you see, protesters are just out there, you know, out there in the open. They're out there protesting, but then you have the police who are beating them over the heads, they're, they're doing this to them, they're zip tying them, they're doing this. But then you see other countries who probably, like China and other countries who've been through this, you know, many more times, they go out, they have helmets, they're, they're trained, they know they have helmets, they have clothing, they have, you know, backpacks, they have you know, signals, they, you know, like they're prepared for this. And we're not, we're not prepared. We're just kind of like just showing up with t-shirts and flip-flops. I'm like, hey, I want to get out here and I want to make change. But I don't think, I think we, we're not making much change because we're doing the same things that our our previous generation were doing and we're not moving forward. So if, if I can just kind of jump in on that, 
it's because we've been conditioned to kind of in some ways be reactionary. So, so one, so one of the differences in, if I'm going to use that us versus them mentality is we're only thinking about this in moments and times after something happens where we're dealing with fighting against a system and a group of people who are always thinking about ways to advance and to better themselves in their situation. So if we're thinking about it one time every three months for three weeks, and they're thinking about it 365 days out of the year, obviously they're going to have the advantage because they're being more tactical, like you said, in saying, if I do this, this leads to this. If I do this, this prepares me for this. Whereas we got to see somebody get killed, as tragic as that is, then we go to the streets, tear some stuff up, everybody's upset, we have these conversations. But when things kind of calm down, we're not having this, the conversation with the same intensity and giving it the same focus because we're very reactionary. We got to be proactive and say, even if nobody, you know, has gotten killed in the last, you know, four months, that doesn't mean we've progressed very much. We got to think about what's next and how to get to that next step. Yeah, and I, would, well, uh, I, I think that the, the thing is, uh, not to cut you off, Frank, um, the, the thing is, is that, you know, the old saying goes, um, prepare for war in times of peace, prepare for peace in time of war. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we, we're not prepared, we're not prepared, right. but also we're going against a system. Like it's not, it, it's kind of like, you, you know, we got some real talented guys that's, you know, I'm a good ball player, you a good ball player, you a good ball player, you a good ball player, but we going up. You know, we show up to the gym and, you know, we're playing against Kentucky Wildcats. You know, we, we fight in a system that's just been kind of ingrained and just, you know, over and over and over. And, you know, it's, it's generations and generations and generations and generations. You know, they've got a 400-year head start on us, um, you know. And, and as far as we've come, you know, that, that 400 year head start is still something. It's still a really big deal. Um, and you know, and that's that's kind of why I hate when people say um, that the system is broken. Because um, the system is not broken. The system is working exactly the way that it was designed to, to work. You know, as, you know, everybody talks about the constitution, the bill of rights, things like that. But we, you know, our ancestors weren't even considered a man. Mm-hmm. At that time, we were property, you know. And so, when they say all men that the Constitution says all men are created equal, but they not they they weren't talking about me. They weren't talking about Henry James from Fairfax, Alabama, you know, on the Joe James plantation at the time. Um, he he wasn't a damn man to them, you know. Um, and and so that's that's just the, the mm-hmm. system that we're fighting. You know, everything I'm saying is great. Like we don't have the leadership, we, we're not prepared and all that. But you know, we, just like I said, we just some guys at the hoop at the Sanderson, we talk about going across yeah. the street, playing the Hump Coliseum against yeah. the SEC basketball team. Yeah, we playing we play pickup ball against an established program, against Blue Bloods, basically. Yeah. It's funny how you, you bring up the Constitution. Yep. I thought yep. I, you bring up the Constitution. I had this thought earlier today. I'm like, the Constitution wrote so far and so long ago for people at that time, and they expect us to still be living by those rules that they were living in at that time. Now, you know, like Killer Mike said, we got to get in those. We got to get vote and beat up, like beat up the box and get our people in that we want to get in. But you know, if we can't get out and vote 
and nothing changes, it doesn't do us any good because we don't control the laws. And the law, the man who, who he who controls the laws control the land, and they control the. And so, if they control the law, they can write it in, write things out. You know, they can manipulate it. They can bring up things way in the past that you're not prepared for. Like when Trump came out with this 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 um this order about inciting. You know, we, if you don't send if you don't handle your your state, then I can send a, I can send a national guard in. And then you later come out as like. Hey, this guy, he's basically can't do what he's saying he can do. He's just saying what he wants on TV to try to put fear in people. And you're like, dude, you can't even do that. Like, so he who write the, he who write the laws control the land. So for us to get in there, we got to get people in. We got to get our people in there to say, hey, man, we need to change some of these things in this constitution because this constitution is not built for us anymore. It's like, let's go back and let's try to rewrite this or let's implement our you know, our footprint into this for our next 100 to 400 years for our next couple of generations. Because otherwise we're living for, we're living in the 1700s constitution time for the 19 to 2000s. Like that's, how, how, what, what sense does that make? We're living by rules that were placed so long ago and things have changed now. We're free, supposedly free now, but we're living by rules when people weren't even considered a, a, a full human being or a man. We was like I said, considered property at that time. Mm -hmm. Like when you when you're when you're going to the when you're going to the, the voters box, like are you prepared to, you know, find this find this guy that you want to be your leader? Or are you just more or less just voting just because you, you have the right to vote now? You mm -hmm. know what I'm saying? So and as a leader, you know, coming out of the community, where do you find these leaders? Like, you know, where where do we where do we turn to to find these? Do we, do we learn turn to the churches? Do we turn to the streets? Do we turn what community like how do we find these leaders? It has to be a mixture of all of them. Um, you got to have some people who have faith, but you also have to be have some people who are who are willing to fight. And a lot of times, you don't find those people in the same place. But understand the message of those who have faith is just as important as the message of those who are willing and ready to fight. And it's about blending it. One of the things that we got to recognize is. We're never gonna 100% agree with anybody. As black people, we didn't always 100% agree with what Obama did, but he was the best option for to represent our our culture and our interests at the time. And so we have to be willing, like we did with uh, President Obama, to educate ourselves on who's available and who is our best option. And sometimes that is people from you know, the faith community from churches or whatever saying, you know what, yeah, this person may be a church guy or church person, but they don't represent my interests and what I need from a holistic standpoint, like this person who is, you know, not necessarily from the church. And being able to put aside those things that would say, well, because they don't check every box, I'm just going to sit it out. Because we have to learn how to compromise in the sense of who's going to do the greater good versus saying, I'm gonna sit out and just not participate in this election because the other side, they gonna vote with they folks whether they agree with them or not. It's a lot of people that can't stand Donald Trump that are, voted for him one time or gonna vote for him again simply because they feel like he's the lesser of two evils. They think he's an idiot. They think that he's ill-prepared to do the job that, that he's doing, but he's the guy that's gonna push more of their interests than anybody from the other side. But as, you know, again, because we're reactionary, because we can sometimes be more emotional, a lot of times our community will say, if, if you don't make me feel all the way good, I'm not gonna give you my support. And so then that's what dilutes our voice. 
but so I'm saying, and, and you know, and this is me as a pastor saying, whether it's you know someone from the church or someone from the street, you got to pick. You got to pick somebody and say, this is the person I'm going back. They may not have everything that I'm looking for, but they're the person that's going to do the most good to push and to help my community and help my interests going forward. And, and like you said, going back to um, the Trump issue, it starts from the top down. And when we are, you know, you have your two parties, your, your Democratic and Republicans, which already is divided, which divides right. the country side or the other side. And then we, you know, we don't we don't talk to our leaders. We're not we're not in those offices. They come by and they, they beg for our vote and we give them our vote and then they get into the office and then they just appeal to the money. We're not holding right. these people for doing the things that we should be holding like we should be doing more than just say hey i need a road fixed in my neighborhood which is your local your local um people but you need to be talking to your your, your state people and your governors and, and pushing these people to do the things that they need like hey what's your agenda like we always talk about the black agenda but the black the black agenda what is the black agenda like nobody if you go to anybody say hey what's the black agenda they, the, the typical person would be like I don't, I don't know, you know, because we, we have, we have nothing established. Like, that's what I'm saying. We're not preparing in the peace times to figure out like, what do, if they say, they say, okay, black community, what do you want right now? All right. We, we're going to take, we understand you don't, we, we want to take police brutality off the list because we don't, we, we're no longer going to be doing police brutality, but beside police brutality, what do you want as a black community? And I'm, pre I'm pretty sure if you ask a typical person, they couldn't tell you. They'll just make, just make up some, just some random stuff. So we have to almost come together and talk, say, hey, this is what we need. And this is, what we, this is who we're backing. So when this person gets in office, we hold that person accountable. Like we're not holding our, 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 our councilmen and our city people and our local people. You know, we hold, we're not holding them accountable. So when, it does, when something does pop off, it's like more or less the, 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 the big government are trying to, trying to tell us what to do. Mm -hmm. And then the government sounds like, oh no, we're not doing what he say. We're gonna do what we say. You know, each government, cause like as, the, as the, the virus has basically taught us this, you know, every governor is like every man for himself. Like yeah. every, every governor is every man for himself. Whereas when you think of the big, in the big picture, you're like, oh, the, the, the president should tell, tell the country, hey, this is what we're doing. And this is the direction we're gonna move in. But he says one thing and then the governor and the mayor says a totally different thing. So if they're not together and we're not together, then we are gonna just continue, continually be in chaos. Yeah. I mean, so in a chaotic time, Boy, like, what what do you think we could do to kind of like bring the chaos down? How do we come together? Like, do we use social media? Do we kind of do it the old grassroots way? Do we get on the ground? Do we get boots on the ground? Like, what direction do you think we should go in? Well, I, I think that it's a it's a combination of everything. Everything you mentioned, we gotta hit it from the grassroots. Um, you know. For living here in Iowa, I get to see like the caucus, you know, like they knock on every door in the state trying to get you the caucus for their person. And it's crazy that the day after that shit's over, they gone. Gone. It was a lady that was coming to our church. It was a black lady that was going to our church and she was like, oh, I'm just in town caucusing. And after that caucus, we ain't seen her since. Mm -hmm. You know, they, they would have flies and all sorts of stuff all over the so, so if we can just do, keep that same energy for our own neighborhoods, you know, whether it be, you know, attending those, those meetings for things and, or, or even, you know, attending city council meetings or attending your local neighborhood watch meetings or, or what have you. Um, but also we need to share things on social media. 
yeah, we need to still be able to to show everything that we have. It's, it's, it allows us to communicate differently. You know, Aunt, you're in Louisiana, Frank, you're in you're in California, but we're 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 sitting here talking right now, right. Um, like like we're right yeah. down the street from each other. Technology you is not um, te- Technology has just made the world so much smaller. But but also we you know we we put so much and this is kind of what I want to talk about we put so much on you know black people and our response to things um, and and I think that sometimes we may even just be a little bit too hard on ourselves um, because you know we're judging our reactions and how to handle things as opposed to saying like yo we really live in a messed up society we really are treated wrong not just you know yes yes we we got all sorts of stuff that's wrong there are in our neighborhoods and you know and it's because of bad schools and it's because of redlining it's because of this and because of that but you know this stuff didn't just happen just because you know it's you know so so i think that it's time to to call you know those people on the other side to the carpet like look yeah y'all need to have this discussion with yourselves you know, racism is a real thing. You know, you need to have this discussion. You know, y'all need to go to the white people meeting. You know, everybody was about, oh, I'm gonna go to the indoor speak. No, when, when is the white people meeting that they, that whenever they go and they set up all the red line and all the discrimination and all that, whenever y'all go there, somebody that's always talking about they're an ally or whatever, and they wanna call or text or whatever, I just wanna check on you. When are you gonna go, when are you gonna piss some people off at Thanksgiving dinner? Mm-hmm. Say, leave these fucking black people alone. You know, you shouldn't think that way. Yes, you call and you, you, you empathize with me and you're thinking about me and my kids and you're thinking about my wife and this, that, and the third. But when are you going to tell your racist-ass aunt, like, yo, what you're doing is messed up. You got to chill with that. Mm-hmm. You know, you got to... So they got to be able to call their people to to the carpet the same way that we, we're sitting here and, you know, looking inward, you know, and, and looking at things in our community things on that side are really messed up as well yeah and, and now that you bring it up you know we it's it's like a yin and yang it's like you have some people in the community saying let's do all black, all black that we don't need we don't need the other races we can do it all by ourselves and then you have another portion of the, of the communities like hey we need allies you know we need allies to come in and help us get where we need to be because you know, we don't have the the whites on our you know somewhat on our side. Then we don't get the voice amplified as much as we need it to be amplified. Because if you believe it or not, after we saw the George we saw the George Floyd uh, murder, you know, you saw um, Stack Five or um, Stephen Jackson. You seen seen Stephen Jackson kind of get out in front of it, and because he was a face that people knew from undisputed NBA champion. You know, he the Malice in the Palace, all that crazy. You know, saying just his entire career as an NBA player. Now you see the whites come to the table and be like, "Oh well, I know him. Let me see. Let me see what he's talking about. I know I see him on first take. I, you know, I, he's a good guy. Let me see what he's talking about. Oh wow, wow, that is that is a murder. I actually witnessed a murder. Like, okay, now let me go out in the street. And I think that has a positive effect. Where I think the younger generation, because they've been already, in, they've already been intermingling. They've been already, you know, they've been they've been, they've been dating. They having kids, the interracial kids. So they understand. Say. Being a black guy and you're white and you have a kid together, 
that could be your son or your daughter on the ground with that guy has his, have a knee on his neck or his have a boot on his neck. So I think that's why the younger generation get it a lot more than the older generation. Of course, there's still going to be some, you know, some bad apples out there, you know, after, as they say. But I believe the younger generation, because they've been going to school together a lot longer, you know, they just kind of starting to get it. And that's what's going to, I think, that's kind of help us. So when you guys see that, what do you think about you know, the kids and the, the next generation helping propel us to possibly get some possible change. Like, do you think that's possible? I mean, I think it's possible. I think that it it is going to take a level of trust from those who are in the earlier generations to say, we don't know everything. We don't have all the solutions. So let's trust some of these, you know, people from a different generation, from a younger generation and just try it their way. Um, and, and that's a tough thing. Like, like trust, when you're talking about my life, my livelihood, my existence and my identity, trusting somebody else with that is tough. And I think that because there, there's a quote that I, um, that, that I've, I've, I forgot where I heard it from, but I heard it a long time ago. It says people fear and reject what they don't understand. That's just not from an external standpoint, but that's also internal. So if my father, who is in the baby boomer generation, has understood the world from a certain vantage point for the almost 70 years that he's been alive, and now I'm coming and I'm in my mid to late 30s, or even someone who's younger than me in, my, in their 20s, and saying, hey, let's try it this way. You know, my father's known the world and known society one way for 70 years. It's hard for him to say, you know what? I'm going to pull back, take my hands off of it and trust you with to do something. I don't even know what you're doing. I don't know anything about social media. I don't know anything about, you know, digitizing all of these different things. But if you say it's going to work, then I'm going to just rock with it. So I think it's having those conversations, making sure that we all understand that we're trying to go in the same direction, but also being willing to trust one another to say, you know what, because I believe you have not just your best interest at heart, but the culture's best interest at heart. I'm gonna trust you to kind of, you know, take the, take up this mantle and kind of run with it. And boy, I come back, I come to you with this one. You know, I hate to put you on the spot. Do you think the black community can black community can do it by themselves? Do you think we can take that next? We can propel ourselves without yeah. white. So, so here's here's the thing that that I I wholeheartedly believe that, and you know, this is a utopia sense that if things were equal and we were given the opportunity to do things just us just our way have our own communities have our own schools have our own banks have our own this that and the third i think we would flourish like i, I think that being freed from the oppressor for lack of a better term um would would you know would embolden us you know like go back and talk to so it's funny i had his head on um trojans um my kids play trojan baseball it's the mascot of the high school here but it's also the mascot of 33rd avenue high school in guffport which was the black high school and you know people talk about how great you know how the great 
successes that came out of 33rd and you know there were you know Lombardi and all these great people that graduated from 33rd and not only 33rd but pre-integration you know the black neighborhoods were thriving they had you know stores gas stations and this that and the third you know and then I feel like it, it wasn't integration but it was you know kind of assimilation like we, we instead of integrating like taking some of you know taking some of white culture taking some of black culture and putting it all together we all of, left all of our culture and went you know towards white culture you know and 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 that was intentional um and, and one of the things that that i've been kind of researching lately um is the the way that some of the highway systems when when the highway systems were built in america the highways were designed to go through these black neighborhoods and destroy the black neighborhoods um a lot of the interstates that's when it's out of minneapolis that's one of the things that they talk about um you know my grandparents are from montgomery um, they talk about how they build right where the interstate is in montgomery was kind of like downtown of the black area um and so you know i you know like i was saying i'm i'm looking to 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 be independent be more independent businessman uh, the next year and one of my you know long-term goals is to open up a credit union is to open a bank you know um just just so we can we can control our money so we don't have to worry about you know allies and things like that um speaking of allies i'm gonna tell you this quick story um not to kind of digress but so this week on social media we've had all sorts of you know everybody had the blackout screen hashtag black lives matter things like that so my wife um had a girl that she worked with some years ago and they're they're you know she considers them good friends like we invite her to a wedding and you know they talk on social media and so she had black lives matter in her facebook uh profile picture or whatever so oh that's great you know rachel is a man so rachel had the black lives matter so <laughs> you know also you know that on venmo uh, and this this is like a real woman thing, you know, women real nosy. Uh, on Venmo, if you look on Venmo, you can see like all your friends' transactions. <laughs> so the same lady that had the Black Lives Matter stuff had donated some money for police supplies, like the same, Explosion. like the same time. So, you know, you know, and so while she was an ally, you know, on Facebook and all of that, she, where her money was, was, you know, donating the police supplies. Now it could have, it could have just been a coincidence. And so I, I, I'd like to see, like, are you always donating something to police, or is it just in this time tomorrow, you're putting your money, you know, towards that type of thing? And I said, I told that story to say, like, we we have to always be wary of those that are you know, allies or, you know, present themselves to be one way because that, that may not be the truth. And, and, you know, I hope and pray that, that they are what they say they are, but I'd be willing to bet that, you know, the same people that had these Black Lives Matter, you know, marching and doing all that, that when push comes to shove, you know, they might actually be on the other side. They're just trying to show a good face.
yeah. And like I said earlier, this is just the opportunity to expose these people because just she almost kind of pulled a Drew Brees. You know, she basically, you know, outwardly she's supporting you know, Black Lives Matter. She's supporting the Black community, but then when it, where it really counts is where your money's going, and that and that basically shows us where your money's going. So you're just doing it so that because it's like basically if you're not saying anything, then you're not with us. So they don't want to seem like they're not with the community because they probably live in a community where Blacks are. They probably go to they work with community where blacks are want to say oh i said something when this was going on but on the low your money's going there and then i circle back to you where you talk about the trojan hat that's so big that's why actually earlier like you know well you, did you go to school with trojan because i went to school you know my school was east Side high and we were trojan and so we were you know i know unlike you guys you guys probably were already so so in the black so i can talk no i was saying because you guys are you guys are yeah i can talk about this like like black culture forever Hey, we're going to take a quick break. I really hope you guys have been enjoying the podcast so far. We'll be back in a few, so go ahead and check that text message or DM and stick around for some more of this Two America virtual talk with my guys. Um, not to cut you off, but I can talk about black culture forever, but like for whatever reason, um, like uh, Trojans was a, like a prominent name for black high schools um you know i, I don't know why and, and I, it was east side right cleveland east side that's where you went yep east side yep. Yep. and, and it, it's a it's a few more schools that were black schools that were trojans um and so i have a, a certain affinity for the 33rd avenue high school trojans because my grandfather was a principal there and uh was a football coach for a long time there before going to work um and become a principal of the white school Gulfport high um in the 70s um and so i always think that this is really cool that you know to that my kids play for you know trojans baseball now. yeah and like like i was saying like i was saying though you know when I asked you that question, it was basically I was asking that because um, well, the high school that I went to, it was a uh, Eastside High, so we were Trojans. We were we were basically 100% black. We hadn't been integrated because like you guys, schools were probably already been integrated. We weren't integrated. Our junior high, our, our elementary school wasn't it. Our our middle school wasn't integrated. Nor our high school integrated. So we had. Like you say, and, and then going back again, what you're saying about the highways, but more or less for us, it was the railroad system. It was the railroad system. So we have a, a train track to go right down, split the middle of our town. So you have all the whites on one side, you have all the blacks on one side. And we, in our t our side of town, in our school, we thrive. We were doing great. You know, our school, you know, you have your, your, your dust ups of here and there, but our school thrive because the black community can survive without support from the white community because our dollars go to our black owned stores, go to our black owned cleaners, they go to our, you know, our, our dish, uh, clo uh, car washes, you know, you know, your laundromats and you have your stores and you have, you have your own parks. And then when we play sports, we play against the, you know, the, the, the next side of the, the other side of the track, which would be the white side. Well, we don't play at the high schools. Like when we play football, we played at the the college, the Coliseum, which is a college stadium. So we don't even mix and mingle when it came to those different things. So, you know, I, I totally think we can survive without their help. We just have to have the infrastructure in place. So when we do break away, that we can survive. You know, cause that's, cause I would tell, I, I talk to my parents about this all the time. I was like, because I live in a small town, you know, was, when I grew up it was about 10,000. So now it's probably about 12, 13,000. If they cut off the support for Walmart for three weeks, four weeks, six weeks, the town would die because yeah. 
we're not we're not you know we're not we're not producing anything on a massive level we're not we don't have any produce we're not we don't have any hog farms anymore we're not we're not doing any cows we're not doing anything so that's why i said we have to have the infrastructure in place so when we do break away I know, and you kind of talked about this, you know, we talk about in the chat that your family has, you know, a lot of land where you guys are doing like cows and other things. Speak on that, speak about that. You know, cause that's what we need. We need agriculture in right. our community. Our older generation, they had the agriculture, but right. us younger generation, we don't quite do it as much. Yeah, well, well, I mean, that's a great point. One of the things my grandfather was, so my grandfather had, he graduated high school, but then he essentially worked in a clock or he started out doing being like a grocery delivery guy and then worked in a clock factory pretty much his whole adult life. But the whole time, my grandfather was savvy enough to just like buy land. And what he would do was when he had cousins or aunts or uncles who were like, you know, I inherited this land, but I don't really want to uh, do anything with it. I'm going to just sell it. He would go and talk to them and say, instead of selling it to somebody outside the family, just sell it to me. To the point to where my grandfather in our county became one of the uh, largest landowners in Winston County in Mississippi. It's, you know, it, not just as a black or black man, but just period. I mean, just, you know, all kind of stuff. But he was really intentional about what he did with it. It wasn't just there and just kind of sitting there. My grandfather, um, you know, had these huge gardens where uh, he, we would just kind of grow all kind of stuff or whatever. And he would have all his grandkids out there helping him work it. He raised cattle. He used part of his land to plant timber on and raise timber. And so after, you know, 10, 15 years, you're cutting timber off, you're replanting, but then you got another plot where it was planted five years later. So, you know, it's gonna be cut at a different time to make money. And the thing he's always proud himself on was he was like, it, he would literally say, and it will be a lot of times when like it would be storms and it would knock out power and stuff like that. He would say, if if the world shut down, I can still survive because I'm growing my own vegetables. I'm raising my own cattle so I can have protein and I got a wood stove. I can go cut my own trees and, and have heat in my house, all these kind of things. And it was that idea of it, it feels primitive, but you know, I, you know, when when Katrina happened and in Winston County, like the power was out for three, four days out there in the middle of the country. We were still eating good because my grandma had all kinds of stuff in the deep freezer. We had deer, we had, you know, and it, so it, the concept was proven, but it took work and it wasn't glamorous. He wasn't, you know, trying to, you know, to, to you know, show how rich he was because he really wasn't rich, but he had enough to be able to sustain. And one of the things that's cool now is even my dad, my dad has worked professionally for, you know, a long time. He finally retired a few years ago. And now my dad is into raising cattle. Now my dad, you know, is doing the same thing. He's raising his own gardens, all that kind of stuff. And it's that idea that I don't have just enough for myself, but I also have enough to, to share with somebody else. I mean, literally my grandfather, my grandparents, my grandparents would have these huge gardens. They would grow more stuff than you know, them or their children and grandchildren could ever consume. So what we would do was after we got what we needed, my grandfather would be like, hey, if you know, he would just be calling people. I got stuff out there. If you want to come pick your own stuff, if you want to come get your own stuff, it's there. You know what I'm saying? You know, taking care of people in the community who didn't have 
the family structures that we had, all that kind of stuff. So it was that, again, going back to being selfless to say, yeah, I've put in all this work. You weren't out here in the hot sun killing this ground. You weren't planting these things, all this kind of stuff. But because I've been blessed to be able to have something, I'm going to share that with somebody else. And I think that the more we can get to that point is that's when we begin to see having a community and a culture that can be self-sustaining that's not dependent on um you know other people or other organizations to help us if you look at even uh my dad again he, he's a part of this black farmers coalition and literally the number of black farmers in mississippi has dropped like almost 70 percent in the past 20 to 25 years so that means that we're not growing our own crops we're not you know, raising our own livestock. Now we're more dependent on somebody else to give us what we need versus us making it for ourselves. And that's, that's a problem, especially in a place like Mississippi, which is an agricultural state. So. Like I said, it's, it's, it's about infrastructure and things like that. Yeah. We have to be able to, we have to be able to mass produce for our own communities. Cause like you say, your dad, my, my uncle used to do it. He used to have fields and fields of just fruits and vegetables. He would come and just drop off bags of beans and yeah and tomatoes and you know fellas just he was able to go out and like I said he wasn't work he wasn't flashy he would drive he would ride a tractor through town he was that type of guy with boots in the tractor but he loved he loved life and he loved to to grow produce and he loved to you know plant things and live off the land whereas our generation we're more or less we're more fast-paced we want things we want to go to the grocery store and we want to get produce, but we don't know where this produce is coming from. We don't know who we're supporting at these grocery stores. Because you just go buy a tomato, but you don't know where the tomato came from. You can't track it down. You don't know who, what kind of pesticides are being on it. So when it comes to the black community, we have to be able to do these things ourselves. So we have to kind of go back to our communities and do do different things. And when uh, just kind of circle back to what you were saying, board about, the, about you want to own a bank one day. The craziest thing I, I, I saw when I was at home, again, my small town, Cleveland, Mississippi, you know, probably 10 to 13,000 at this point. I went to that town, you know, I haven't, you know, I haven't, I graduated in 01, so, you know, I moved away. And when I go home recently, I went home and I saw that there were about 13 banks in a town of like 10 to 13,000 people. And I was just like, whoa, whoa, let me, I took a step back and was like, there's a bank, there's a bank, there's a bank, there's a bank. Went around the corner, there was another bank. I'm like, why does this town have so many banks? And then my pops, you know, they live out in the country now. So he was like, I was like, Dad, why? I was like, Pops, why are all these banks? Why are all these banks on the highway? When I came to town, we had like maybe two banks, three banks, maybe, credit union here. You got 13. I'm like, Pops, why are these banks popping up? He was like, I was like, but then I rode through the town, but I don't see no construction going on through the town. So I'm like, so if you have all these banks and there's no construction going on, so there's not, nobody's building homes, like, what do you do? But I see a lot of cars around the neighborhood. I'm like, why are all these cars around the neighborhood, but we don't have a factory? All we have is really Walmart because when they shut down the rail, railroad, all the factories left the town because all the factories were using the railroad system to ship things to Jackson, Memphis, and all around the world. But I'm like, why, what's going on? He was like, have you, went, have, you, have you went across the track yet? And I was like, nah, what happened? He's like, come on, let's go across the track. So my pops took me across the track and I just see nothing but new communities being built on the outskirts of town, you know, where we were excited about buying those old homes in the white neighborhoods because we felt like we, we, we actually, we progressed, we, we were able to buy those homes. 
what they've done now, they're selling the homes to us and we're thinking we're doing something, whereas they're building brand new communities on the outskirts of town, probably paying less for the land, probably paying less on the taxes, and they're having all these new communities built up. And I was like, how, no, like, what's going on? Like, nobody's seeing this but me? I'm like, and, and because they're probably in the mix of it, that they don't really see it. But, you know, you have a, you have a different eye when you're coming from the outside in versus the inside out. And I'm like, this doesn't make sense. So, you know, boy, when you're talking about those banks, what would it take for a black person or a black, a black uh, fund group to come together to, to create a bank? Like, what would we have to do to create a bank to get our money in one place? Man, when I, when I tell you, when I tell you what all that it takes to, to start a credit union, you're gonna be you're gonna be sick to your stomach by how simple it is. It take a hundred thousand dollars. It take a hundred people with a thousand dollars. It take a hundred people with a thousand dollars. It take a hundred thousand dollars. A hundred people, a hundred a hundred thousand dollars. Um, by laws, you don't even have to have a physical location. Um, you know, they're, they're, that's just the capital side of it. There's a lot of other, um, you got to be registered with, uh, you know, one of the government agencies, NCUA, um, governments over credit unions, but, um, or the FDIC, um, governments over all your larger, uh, depository institutions. But, um, yeah, that's, that's the, the dollar amount that you have to have a hundred thousand dollars, like. Um, I mentioned on the last podcast I was on that I was in discussions with my dad, kind of taking over um, his accounting and tax firm, um, and we kind of moved, we was moving forward on that. But I mean, and I looked at it, and I, you know, I kind of did the math. I was like, you know, you got X amount of, you know, a few hundred clients that are getting several thousand dollars back at a time that federal income tax time if you can convince a hundred of them to you know put a thousand of those dollars into you know james credit you know whatever that you want to call it you got a bank a hundred people with a thousand dollars it takes a hundred thousand dollars or you just have uh you know somebody to deposit a hundred thousand dollars i got a, a, a partner of mine that, that runs a company that if he decided to run his payroll to to let my credit union run his payroll, we could we could do it tomorrow. Because he, like, he does what, over a thousand dollars. Why aren't we doing this? If it's is it is it lack of knowledge? Is it the lack of knowledge that we don't have? That I, we're not I, I doing think it? that's what it is, man. Honestly, I think that it's and I'll speak for me. I, I, I won't speak for nobody else. It's fear. It's 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 the the, the unknown, it's the, the lack of security. Um you know I I'm a Kappa, uh, Kappa Alpha Psi had a, had a credit union at one point, um, and they were running like all the membership intake uh, fees through there. And, you know, I thought it was a great idea, um, but it just, just kind of bottomed out because for lack of support. Um, so I think that people fear, um, you know, just oh, no. the fear, it's any, any, any kind of fear that anybody has uh, when you start a business is, it's the yeah. same thing. And what you're saying right there, I think it, it comes back to established banks, established white banks versus up and starting new black banks. So when you have 
and you're you're depositing. Yeah, I mean it's it's anything. Yeah, you having checks and you're depositing checks into the white banks. You safe and secure. Whereas you have somebody who has started upstart on new bank. Like you said, you might have a bank that's just totally online. You don't even have a physical location. You're just totally online, and people don't trust that because they don't have anywhere to go. So you have these small communities where they're probably still getting paper checks. And they need to be able to go to the liquor store, cash a check and deposit money, or they get money from the government, be able to deposit checks like that, where they don't understand that you can have an affiliate bank to come in and have your physical location where you can put your money in and you can your 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 primary bank could just be totally online. And so when we just have the lack of information. And that's that's what a lot of these banks are doing. I agree. That, that, I agree. That's what a lot of these banks are doing. Like all of us have cat. All of us had Cash App and Venmo and all that. All that is is a is a, a bank without a location. Um, I got my son a Cash App card that I can so I can like put money into his account. And I got the card right here because I was gonna talk to y'all about it. And so it just says it's issued by Sutton Bank. So essentially, it's like he has an account at whatever Sutton Bank is. Who knows what the hell that is, you know? And as I make, you know, I give him twenty dollars here, fifty dollars here. You know, he got to buy something when he's with his mom, or he's out with his friends, wants some ice cream or whatever. And I put that on his cash app, and he just goes and swipes the card. Like, but what it is is I'm making a I'm making a transaction from my account to to his account at Sutton Bank, and they take in, you know, what is it like one percent or whatever. You know, if I you know if I give him, I don't know. Fifty, a hundred dollars a month. One percent of a hundred dollars is a dollar. If a million people use Cash App and transfer and get that one percent from everybody, you're making a million dollars. You know, so so there aren't like real physical banks like that anymore. So like owning a bank is a real thing that can happen. You know, it's but it's just like any other business. Um, you know, and honestly, with with our people, oh yeah, man, that that and it's I hate doing that, but. People, people going, people going. You know, you gonna have to make sure you got your shit in order. So, so let me ask this question though, and and I get the whole fear piece that you were talking about, but with so many black influencers who capital is not the issue. You got entertainers who are bragging about they're making a hundred thousand in a show. You know what I'm saying? Or however that looks. You know, athletes who are able to in, in in the simplistic turn or way that you put it essentially take one game check and you could have a couple of athletes pool together and start a credit union or a bank or entertainers come together and say i'm gonna take the proceeds from this show you take the proceeds from this show we literally could start this credit union or bank so the fear the fear element is out now because you know i, I know that i have the capital to be able to do it What's stopping our influencers, our, you know, if you want to call them leaders or whomever, the elite in our culture from doing that kind of stuff? I, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Just that, like you said, it goes back to fear unknown. Like, they don't you know, understand I, what the power that, that that dollar have. Like, they un- they don't understand that the power that their dollar have and what it could possibly do for. Well, I was I was speaking for I was speaking for me. Yeah, I was speaking for me as far as the fear of the unknown. Mm-hmm. But it, it it really makes no sense why there aren't more black banks. Why you know, Jay Z and Diddy 
can't run run Bad Boy and Rockefeller's payroll through, you know, XYZ Bank that they own, that they, um, you know, and they employ, you know, there's so many things that you can do, you know, you own a bank, you can employ people, you can have interns, you can just roll that right. shit, just keep that money within yourself. Um, you know, yeah, you can- it's, so I don't, I don't know why, you know, but why don't they have, why don't they have black lawyers? Why don't they have black accountants? Why don't they have, do they have, you know, when they build these multi-million dollar houses, do they have uh, black contractors come out there and build them? Do they, you know, you know, do they have a black plumber? Do they buy their cars from black owned um, auto de- dealers? You know, do they have black chefs? Do they, you know, it's, that's just, talking about banking, it's just like one thing. Like, we probably, if we sat down right here, we could discuss knowing somebody in every field for everything that we do. Yeah. I, the the it's crazy. The air the air is messed up in my car right now. And my wife found somebody on Facebook, a black guy that knows how to fix that specializes in auto AC. You know, I got a homeboy back in Gulfport that specializes in HVAC. You know, so if if something goes out of my parents' house, I give him a you know but, but why you know we can't just say well, why don't we have a black bank why does a duty open no but why why don't why do i you know like why is my lawyer a white dude like when i went through like a custody battle with my son's mom why did i hire a white lawyer mm-hmm. i gotta look at myself in the mirror and ask that you right. know what i'm saying like did I, I bought my car from a white guy why didn't i go to a black guy to buy my car or to a black dealer yeah what you're talking about right now you're basically or talking about did, you know you're talking about Black Wall Street. That's basically what you're talking about. And, you know, seeing what we, what we just went through, what not what we just went, what we're going through now with the George Floyd situation and the rise, you know, what's coming, what's, what's been popping up back is the Black Wall Street talk. You know, it was like a, the 99 year, I think, of the Black Wall Street being burned down, where they had all these things in Tulsa, Oklahoma. They had all these things because they had land. They had, you had, you had your barbers, you had your lawyers, you had, you had the whole community. And that's when I go back to, they had infrastructure. So they didn't need anyone from the outside to support because they put themselves. Like I said, they had their own banks, they got their own groceries, got their own people who uh, producing their produce. You know, everything that you need to insulate your community, they had that. But what happened? They burned it down. And right. so now we have to go back and integrate. We have to figure out how to integrate back into society and integrate into their system because they need us more than we need them. So they burn it down. So where do we, 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 we don't have the resources to start from, because if you burn everything to the ground and you put salt on everything, we have nothing to start from. So now we have to come back, work for the, work for the man. And then we don't necessarily, we're not together enough to say, hey, let's rebuild for whatever reason it could have been. We don't have the resource to rebuild. And then you have a next generation who grow up and then you're stuck and now you're stuck back integrated. So you don't have the, you don't have the opportunity to do things on yourself. And um, I know we've been talking about, you know, some of the police, police brutalities. And one of, one of, the, one of my uh, favorite movies I like to watch is Gladiator. And in that movie that I look back on, you know, when times were really tough and Julius Caesar, what he would do? He would basically go and have a show for us. He put on, he put on a big show. He give a few yeah. people bid, and you know he give them food. And so what they did, they calm down the crowd. And so what they're doing now is they're giving us back basketball. You know, it's like whoa, basketball is now coming back. 
Now we can now can we can be distracted from the the primary issue at hand because you know what we have something to entertain us to get us away from the realities of what was basically going on. And so with the basketball, you know, I make a shift. You know, I know we've been talking about that, so I make a shift in trying to incorporate like the 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 basketball being a distraction to us. How do you feel the basketball will make us in the next couple of weeks feel about the situation that's in right now? Um. I think in some ways it'll, because it's going to be the new shiny toy, it'll make us forget about the narrative gets changed. But what I would like to see happen, I highly doubt that it would, was we know that the owners want to bring it back because it's a, there's some kind of financial piece in it, right? I would love to see these elite black athletes say, I'm not going to step on a court and dribble a ball or shoot another ball until you, you, you billionaire owner, use your influence to go and talk with the governmental leaders about some of these things that people have just been riding and protesting about over the last several weeks. Because again, we've, we've been so deprived from sports and entertainment and all of that, that they, they know now they can, they can put everybody together in Orlando at Disneyland no fans there just put it on tv we're gonna watch we're gonna buy merchandise we're gonna be fully immersed in you know the nba is back but how powerful would it be if those elite players said you know what the only way we're gonna go back and play is you all need to spend however much time you know saying these are the bills that we need pushed through congress these are the bills that we need on the president's desk and we expect for him to sign them or we've already missed this see the season is already not going on we'll just sit back and we'll wait as long as it, as it takes those are the kind of things that i think can make a huge difference but again because we're just so crazed and deprived of having some form of entertainment some form of an outlet i think those who are able to capitalize and know that and they know that they can put a subpar product out there and we're going to pay attention to it we're going to consume it because we're just hungry for something. So instead of using the leverage that we may have for good, those athletes, hey, I'm ready to get back out there. I'm ready to get those game checks, all that kind of stuff. So I'll forget about the problems of the day and I'll mask it in. This is my getaway. This is my safe place. No, you getting paid millions of dollars to dribble a ball, shoot a ball, and I'm not hating. God bless you with that ability, but also use that influence to, to, to try to make some difference somewhere. Yeah, and, and that's how I feel, you know, because what distraction leads to the narrative being changed. And that's why, you know, some I, I talk about that and that's why I try to keep talking about it on the podcast. We'll know about Ahmad and, and George and Brianna that I, I want the focus to remain on, you know, the police brutality and the unjust and equality and all those those different things that we are we, we are looking for. Whereas when this sports kick back off and these playoffs start back, yeah. you know, it's going to be hard to get us to readjust back to what we're the, the feeling that we're having right now because you know as a people we want to be entertained and once we start being entertained and we're all like i said into the basketball into the sports world it's going to be hard to get our attention back onto something that we do see it it's going to just we're going to just brush over it. it's going to be like a blip in the road we're going to see it we're going to talk about it a couple of days what is it 24 to 48 hours news cycle and then we're back to the sports because sports probably going to be on every other night because like i said we've been deprived from it so boy when, when 
I know they're going to do like the seeding of like the the top. I think it's like the 16 is. I think it's like the first 13 teams in the in the West, and then you're going to have some other six teams or however they're doing it. The 22 teams in the East, and then if you're four games, they got it all crazy. Like if you're four games away from the eight seed, you can you you won't have an opportunity to play the play-in game. But if you're five, you can you won't have it. So the structure, like, what do you see the basketball looking like when it comes back? Um, I guess July 31st or whatever the date they kind of like aligned it with. Well, I, it's it's gonna be it's gonna be something interesting to see. Uh, is you know I'm a Lakers fan, um, and so the thing I'm looking forward to is you know LeBron's had a couple months off, got some fresh legs. You know he ready to to uh, what do you call it zero dark dark mode dark uh, activated and 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 ready. Yeah, zero dark thirty. And he 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 ready to go, um, but also that boy Kawhi, you know, he got he didn't had time to, to get rested and healed up too. So it's it's gonna be really it's gonna be really interesting to see. Um, I don't really I, I need to look into the um, I need to look into the the playoff seating and things like that. But I'm just I'm just ready to have some, some sports on. But um, speaking of the narrative shift, man. A week ago, you couldn't watch TV without somebody talking about COVID. I ain't heard the words coronavirus in the past week. Right. Um, exactly. So that just kind of show you like how, how how the narrative can change, you know, just like that. You know what I'm saying? Um, and and how things can go. You know, the most important thing in the world, and now it's something else. Um, so. Yeah, man. And like I said, with the with the with the COVID going on. We really we won't really know until two weeks from now how serious was the coronavirus because we have tons of people out in the streets with no ass, no gloves, just kind of out there protesting with one another. So when we get an opportunity in the next couple of weeks to see, hey, are the numbers really up, or were we tricked to believe that this virus was more dangerous than it really was? Like, were we were we were they just because they didn't know and they just feared of the, like I said, they feared the unknown, that they pushed the fear off into us. Like, hey, whoa, whoa, this is something new. We haven't seen this. You guys need to stay at home, stay away from each other. Whereas like now people are out and they don't have a vaccine. So what's different from three weeks ago to now? And then, you know, if it's outside now and then two, three weeks, if the numbers are not just out of control deaths, we need to go just go back outside. We need to yeah. say, just do her and just go back outside. And, you know, I know I've been preaching, stay inside, you know, because, you know, you just want to kind of be safe because you don't know and you don't want to take the chance, you know, with children and, you know, we, you know, you have elderly around, you don't want to take the chance. Of course, people don't get sick. But if you go back outside after this in three weeks and the numbers not going crazy with crazy death, then they might well call it off and let us go back to the daily life and we just deal with what we deal with. You know what I mean? Like, like I said, it, it, it could be you had the coronavirus one week and then we had the protein next week and you don't even hear about the coronavirus. Like I meant they, they may have made a one little segment about it that the numbers are going up, but they're not it's not the fear anymore that they had in us at first. So they, they controlled us with the fear. And then when the fear got over, they was like, hey, all right, we need to start sending we need to get people back to working because we need to get money back flowing. Because mm-hmm. they don't want to have these checks with the unemployment. We got 40 million people on unemployment. They don't want to keep playing these chicks out there unemployment. They want to get it down. What do we do? We open it back up. What what Trump say? Okay, we're gonna bang them over the head. We're gonna get them in the house. And then if the numbers don't go up, you know, basically, if you think about how he's th- if you think about how he's going about it, he's like, we're gonna terrorize them. We're gonna beat them over the head. We're gonna get them back in the house. We're gonna give them sports. In a couple of weeks, if the virus hasn't killed everybody that's been outside, 
then we might as well go ahead and open it back up what he was trying to do from the beginning because I'm tired of it. We don't want to, we don't want any more checks and I need to get the campaign trail. I need to get on the campaign trail. Like yeah. this was about this campaigning time. It's like the harder campaign time. You got to do another, was it September? Was it September? I think September the 21st or whatever the voting thing is. You know, you yeah. got September. Yeah, November, you got, you know, no, yeah, November. And so you got, you got, you're in the heart of really campaigning and going out there and hitting the streets. And so he's like, hey, we need to open it back up, get the folks off the street. Let's see what the coronavirus numbers gonna look like. If it's not crazy numbers, we're gonna open it up and then we're gonna start back campaigning so I can get a head start on whom, on Biden or whoever else is out, he's gonna be um, running against, you know what I'm saying? So it's, it's all about those political plays and those political parties where I think sometimes we, we need to like break away from those political parties. Like as the black culture coming back to that, do we really do we do we need to just break away from the culture from just from the political parties and say, hey, look, we are over here. We need to vote our interests. If you got the best plan for us and you're the best person for us, should we vote with this person? Or are we just always gonna vote one way because we think those people are and that makes them lazy. If you look at right. it, Democrats they're lazy. Right. They're they just come get our money. Like you said, the caucus come through, bang on your doors. And just like my, in my neighborhood when I was a kid, only time I saw a white person or a black, a black uh, prominent person trying to get some money, they knocking on your door trying to get your vote. They get the vote and then they go about their business. And that's what our Democrats are doing. They're basically getting their vote and, they, and they're just being lazy. They're not going through. And I know, I'm pretty sure there's some out there who are really fighting for us and they got you know uh, stumbling blocks or in their ways and whatever the case may be. But as a whole, if you st- take a step back as you get older, you realize like, what are they really doing for us? Yeah, you know, I mean, that's a big part. and it's, I think a big part of that is is voting our interests, but also pushing those people up who are going to be concerned about our interests. One one of the greatest things that I've seen, at least in the last few years, is if you look at Alabama, Georgia, and in Florida, where you had people who were serious um, candidates running against incumbents or you know people from the establishment in the Democratic Party. So in Alabama, you had a black woman uh, or black women who basically boosted the campaign of a Democrat to be able to unseat a Republican. In Georgia, you had Stacey Abrams, even though she didn't win, was a major contender uh, to be uh, you know, the governor of the state of Georgia. And that was pushed by the black culture you know, pushing her, all that kind of stuff. Same thing with uh, Gilliam in Florida, even though he's had his own issues and everything now. The the idea that, you know, black people would be be intentional enough to say, this person is someone who represents us, who we feel and believe is gonna have our best interests at heart. And so we're gonna make him a major contender. And it's that idea of even if you look at the old, at the Democratic Party, it's always been kind of that establishment, white-led, we know how to help you, let us help you, versus us saying, we're gonna put out people who represent us, our interests, and we're gonna change the look, the feel, the shade of the party. And I you know, believe that whether that's Democrat or Republican, it doesn't have to necessarily be along party lines. It's, hey, if you want me to support you, then what matters to me hasn't mattered to you. That's how you get my vote, not whether you have a D beside your name or R beside your name. And if we, as we do more of that, as you see more, even if, even if, and I'm under the impression, even if candidates don't always win, if they see that these people are forced to be reckoned with in this demographic, 
people will start taking that demographic seriously. Like you cannot ignore the black female vote in the state of Alabama anymore. You cannot ignore the African-American vote in the state of Georgia anymore and expect to win you know, for years to come or multiple election cycles. Now you have to change your, if we stay consistent, change your agenda, change your approach to be able to, you know, at least take into consideration the interests of those people who are the difference makers going forward. Yeah, because I'm tired of hearing that rising tide lift all boats. Like, I'm tired of hearing that. You got to give me something more this point you know because i think our generation is the one that's going to kind of take us to the next level because you have the baby boomers and then you have our generation and then you have what generation z or x whatever they're called yeah you know you know we're in that we're in that stage right at that point now when you're in your mid-30s heading into your 40s where you have to be our we have to take over the mantle where our baby boomer parents were kind of like you know they they did their part now it's, it's time for us we're getting to the age where it's time for us to do our part for the next generation so we have to take into consideration like hey what what what's most important to us like that was important to our parents, the baby boomer generation, but what's important to us that's gonna help, and we can't think about the now, we have to think about the future. So when we make these plans, we can't think about in the right now, we have to think about like your kids and their kids, like, cause that's what our parents were thinking about. Like when they were out there again, doing those sit-in, they weren't doing it for themselves at that point in time. They were, they were doing it for themselves. They would know it wasn't gonna benefit from that at that point in time. They were doing it for their kids and their kids, kids, kids. So we have to be in there. We have to take that approach too, where we're thinking about for our kids and their and our grandkids and our great grands, and we have to set them up for success. So what could something like a black? I don't want to just keep using a black agenda. What's something that we could do, you know, in a small small group that could probably amplify if we had more help? What's something that we can do as a small group that could then we can take to a large group and say, hey, look, we've come up with this plan. These are the things that we like. These are the things that we think we should we should go after. And then we need you guys to help us to help get to the point where we want to be. What do you what do you think should be in those type of plans if we had to come up with something right now? Just I know I'm putting you on the spot, but just you know, what what, what do you think? Uh, well, I mean I mean just kind of circle back on what we have been talking about the whole time is if you pass a, a law that that punishes uh police brutality uh first and foremost. Um, you know, there, there needs to be, you know, we start there, then there's also the anti-lynching law isn't, hasn't passed yet either. Um, you know, so it's, it's basically still free game, you know, you know, free reign on niggas at this point from the police and then from, you know, uh, people that, that want to do lynching. Um, uh, you know, I think those are, are two steps that, that two steps that we can take and we can, to, can take to, uh, to a local leadership uh, and, and have them push that to, you know, on the national level, you know, and then also something like voter disenfran- uh, disenfranchisement, um, where they have, you know, make sure everybody is able to vote. Um, you know, Stacey Abrams is, you know, she's from Gulfport. Uh, she grew up in, she grew up for a long portion of her time in Gulfport. Her father was actually our minister at church uh, when I was growing up. She's 15 years or so older than me. But um, she wins that election in Georgia if they don't, you know, remove all those people off of the, the voting rolls. Um, you know, who was it? Like 100,000 people that lost the right to vote or their voter registration mysteriously uh, disappeared. Um, 
you know, things like that. Those are just, you know, three things that are that are easy, easily fixable and, and can be done, you know, right away. Um, those are three three laws that can be done, you know, that quick. Um, you know, give the give. I think that felons, you know, after a certain period, should have a uh, right to vote. Reinstate after you know you've served your time, you know that's just something that's that was put in to to uh, you know mess with black people. So those are those are I think those are just a few things that. No, I was just gonna say if you look at to that point, not just with Stacey Abrams, but if you if you look at the point of some kind of criminal justice reform where felons are able to vote after a certain period of time, how that could have flipped Florida. So now you don't have DeSantis or whatever his name is in Florida. You have, you know, Gillum's in Florida. So those are two states right there who simply by reevaluating or reassessing some form of voter suppression, you could have a completely different situation, leadership in charge of those states. But because the system is set up to find advantages for one side by disadvantaging the other side, you see a very different picture. And that's very interesting. Systematic oppression, that's, and it goes back to it. You have these people who wrote these laws for living in that they didn't see us as human property. So if you go become a convict and you get out, why should you have the vote? Like you're not a human anymore. You don't have a, you don't, you, you mean right. Tim, I have, I go, I commit a crime, serve my time, I come out, and then I don't have the opportunity to vote on the things that I think that are important to me now that I'm in the community, I'm trying to readjust to this community and community into society, but I can't vote on the things that are actually important to me. And so I have to rely on my people to possibly come out and do the voting for me. So you right. basically, and you 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 putting a you putting a whole race at a disadvantage because we're probably getting locked up. I don't know the numbers, but I'm pretty sure we're probably getting locked up more right. parts you know, just per capita and with us being on a 13% of the, the, the population, you know, we're, if you just look at the numbers, we're probably getting incarcerated way more right. with way time. And, you, and we come back to again, like that's the big issue we're having. We're getting way more time where these officers are not getting any time for the same amount of crimes. Like if you strip them down and they're man to man and you commit a crime and you get out and I get all the time and you get administrative leave, I'm finna tap some stuff too. Like you can't exactly. continue to, you can't continue to oppress people and don't think they're going to fight back at some point. You can't put a cat in the corner and don't think a cat's going to fight at some point. And right. that's what they're, they're pushing us to the corner. And we're like, look, we've had enough. This is where we at now. And if you don't, if you don't get it together, we're going to continue to push back. And that's where we have to lean back on our community leaders and our, and the people who are actually making the laws and, and things like that, you know, to come into place. So, you know, I don't want to harp on you know we're the black community not doing what they're supposed to do because we're not being allowed to do what we don't want to do so we continue to build our own bank without like you said bank with our own we have to build our infrastructure with our, our agriculture because that's the primary thing if we can't feed one another then that's the biggest problem that we have yeah you have to be able to feed teach and, and, and teach coding and teach technology to the kids. Cause you know, when, we, when I, I went back home and I did a class for 
you know, for some students in, back in my hometown and me being in the tech industry. So I sent a bunch of computers back home. And I was like, I was like, hey, you know, I always wanted to kind of teach the kids back home technology. So I was like, hey, I had opportunity to, uh, I talked to people that might, where I work with, I was like, hey, I need a bunch of laptops. So I got like five, 10 laptops and I sent them back home. And I went home and I did, I put on a class. And I just stopped in the middle of it. I was like, before, no, before I started, I said, have any of you guys have ever touched a Mac computer? If you never touch a Mac computer, raise your hand. And the entire class raised their hand. So that goes to show me that they're not being, have yeah. they don't have resources like other schools have resources. So we have to continue to put those resources in our youth in order for those people, in order for those kids to grow up with the, with the savviness to be able to live in a tech savvy world and not be the users of every piece of technology that comes out. We can be the ones creating that technology, making the money off that technology, and then funneling it back to our community and for right. the long run. That's I think that's where we're, we're kind of falling. We're lacking because we're always, we're just, consume, we're just consuming. We're not, we're not, we're not building things. We're just consuming. So if we continue to consume, we'll never get ahead because those who are, we're paying those dollars to are actually taking that money and they're funneling it to their communities and they're funneling it to their funds. Cause you hear one, one, one company will give 25, $250,000 to a campaign fund of Trump. So they're going to get their, they're going to get the ear of Trump before yeah. the community get the ear of Trump because we only donated $2,000 or whoever the people who donated to him or we don't donate it. If we don't donate anything to him and he wins, then if the person who donated 250000 they say, hey, Trump, we need blah, blah, X, Y, Z. And he's going to be more apt to do it. So that's why I kind of circle back into what I was talking about where we were counseling people like, we, you know, you did the breeze, you did Trina. And then I also saw where they were talking about counseling uh, Wendy's. It was like a Wendy's, I think what was it called? Yeah. Wendy, uh, Wendy's is over party. And so this is called about, it's all about misinformation. Again, where we don't have the right information. We don't have our, we don't have the technology to push our, 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 our narrative. So say for instance, we just go, on, go online, we see Wendy's is over. And you see that they, they basically donated, you know, $400,000 to the Trump campaign. Immediately the black community right now is saying, we're done with Wendy's. Because you know why? Because we don't have the technology, or we don't have the we don't have the wherewithal to say, hey, let me go do a little bit deeper um, reading into this and see what's going on. Because we don't know who's pushing the agenda. We know we don't know who's pushing the agenda out there. It could have been a white person pushed the agenda out there and say, oh, we want them to do do this, so we're gonna push this out there. So the black community is completely to say, all right, with them. But we but then I went and did some research and I was like, okay, let me look a little bit further into this. So I go and I look and I do some research and I'm reading, I'm reading, I'm reading. And come to find out, it wasn't Wendy's corporate office uh, donating to the campaign. It was more or less a franchisee donating to the campaign. And then I was like, let me take a level deeper. So I went and did some more research. So it's not it's just not even a franchisee. It's a private owned company who own tons of franchises way beyond Wendy's, they own Wendy's, Pizza Hut's, all these crazy different franchises. They have 250,000, they have 25,000 people working for them and they were the party that basically basically um, um, donated $440,000 or whatever else to, to the Trump campaign. But if but if you just see that right at the top, you won't you, you, you see the headline and you just outraged and you're saying, what? Well, I'm done with them. That big deeper. Right. I'm done. And and that's the problem with our community at large is we're so reactionary. We, we see the headline, we react to the headline. We don't know anything else that's going on. It's just, I saw this headline, it made me feel some type of way. So this is how I'm gonna react. And, and the people who are really playing the game of chess while we're playing checkers, they know that. 
they know how to drive misinformation because we're not going to do the research. We're not going to get the understanding. We're just going to take the first thing we see and we're going to run with it. And that's crazy. And I know, I, and I talked about this on a previous podcast where we need to have our black news anchors on news stations giving us black information. Like, why doesn't Revolt ET dedicate an entire hour or two to just news or current? It doesn't have to be news, just to be current events or what's going on to aware us and let us know what's going on in our communities in real time instead of we having to go to Fox News, CNN, and other other outlets or social media because they're going to give their perspective where, you know, somebody like if you're a black anchor on a white network, you can't fully express how you feel about something without being censored. You know, but that's why aren't we having these black women? See, this again, we have to push our community to do, you know, more than just the just the basic. Yeah, we have to have more of our own because they have to be, right now, We in a time like this, we really need to be having a network 24 hours giving us real-time news on what's going on out there in the streets. Because I watch the news and I'm like, they only gave George when it first happened. They only gave George. They only gave George Floyd the two minutes of a story. I'm odd. Two minutes of the story, and then when the video came out and things start to pick up, then they try to cover it more. But they come from their perspective, from their news anchors, where we need to be having our news news anchors. So, like I said, if you control the media, you control the people. Right. Because you're, you're like I said, we're reading headlines. We just stroll and we're reading. Oh, what, that happened. That's what they. That's how. That's what they say. And then you, you subconsciously, that's that's embedded in your brain because you haven't done more research. Whereas we need to have legitimate, factual um, news, black news anchors on black networks that we trust to give us the right news. So if one side of the, if one one station is giving us the BS, we know they say no, this is not true. Because if you think about it, not many people are going to go and do research on topics that they are somewhat not interested in you know everything right now with the george floyd everybody's really kind of tuned in so we all researching and we all kind of staying in tune but what about those topics are just not fatal but you kind of see that somebody's been done wrong but we don't have nobody covering it because the cnn's and the fox and the fox news they only do a minute and a half of a story and then you come back with their news or they're coming back with their ads or whatever they do whatever they're doing so no, we. I just that's just my opinion. I can go on for, for on on and on about that. I just feel like we just need information. Like information is power. Is you know knowledge is power, but applied knowledge is power. If we can't apply the knowledge, then what good is the knowledge to us? So you know these influencers, like you guys say, I don't want to just hold Diddy and, and Jay Z. You know those are. I think those are you know those are the. The, the, those are the, the, the baby boomer generation. They're much older than us. Yes, they can do something for us, but we have to have the influencers who are on the ground right now helping us and kind of getting our word out there because they, they have brands and sometimes they're so entrenched in their brand that they can't say or do the things that they want to do at the level that they want to do. Yes, they. I'm pretty sure because Jay-Z, he does a lot. He gives back for, you know, Justin Long and different things like that. But when you're tied to all these different brands, Sometimes you can't necessarily say what you want to say. Right. Now, I'm pretty sure Jay. I'm sure it's Jay and, and Diddy. They can, but you have other people who are probably right below them. They can't really get out there and pump and say what they want to say because they're tied to all these different brands. And when these brands control you, you know, yeah. you can't say what you want to say. So that goes back to what Boy was saying. We're owning our banks. We're owning everything in our neighborhoods. Like you're saying, you got to end this police brutality. You know, we'll go ahead and we'll let you guys do your last statements, and then and I want you kind of um, wrap us up with a nice prayer to kind of lead us into the and lead us to the to the night. So, boy, I ask you one final question. 
you know, in your opinion, where everything's going on, how can we heal as a country or, or our, our race, our people, how can we heal and get and get over and get past this without necessarily having the justice at this exact moment? So I don't I don't think that it's it's up to us to heal right now. Like it's not when when you when you are the, the thing that I can kind of equate it to is like when you you dealing with a bully in school, like they don't they don't ask the little kid like so how can you stop getting beat up, mm-hmm. like so how can you you know stop getting your lunch money taken, you know so it's not on I I to me and I'm not I'm not speaking for nobody but me, you know I don't think that it's on us to not to learn how to not get killed by the police to learn how to not have be mistreated um you know in this country it's, it's this this one ain't on us this this one ain't on us people you know we we talk to we blew on the face like I, I, you know uh, frank i know you have girls and uh, anthony i know you have a boy and a girl but as raising young somebody that has two boys and as raising young men i worry all the time Neil, don't wear your pants like that. You know, pull your pants up. You know, he's not even doing it intentionally. He's 11. He doesn't know what sagging is. But but you, you got to look this way when you go in the store. Asher, you know, we can't just pick up things, you know, and walk around in the store with them. If you're going to pick it up, we're going to buy it, put it in the cart. Why? Because we don't want somebody to think that they're still there. But their friends and their white friends that they go to school with, I'm sure that they don't have any same discussion. So this one isn't on us. I don't give a damn how they expect us to heal right now, but it's it's not on us. And I think that we have to stop being so passive and you know almost begging master to stop beating us at this point. You know, like I said earlier, it's time for 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 those people that think they're allies. It's time for y'all to start shaking the damn table. It's time for y'all to say, hey, what can I do in my community, in my church? What are the conversations that I can have amongst my peers, amongst my aunts and aunts, grandparents and parents and friends, and in, within my social circles that can help heal things? You know, um, my church had a, a Zoom church conference with with a with a white church last weekend to kind of you know work on it was for for pentecost sunday and it just so happened all this other stuff going on and you know there was talk about having some reconciliation talk i told i told our pastor i said i don't think that that, that we need to be having this this talk with this white church as an ame church they need to take that down to first united methodist and and they need to get together you know as as a community to say what can we do to make things better so that we don't have these these situations we have to the only thing that we can do in my opinion as black people is to fight white supremacy at all costs at all costs it's going to cost us a lot but we cannot bend and break to white supremacy and that's what it is that's what we're dealing with. It's white supremacy. And it's the same crap that, you know, our grandparents were dealing with, you know, coming up in the Jim Crow South. You know, so I don't think that it's on us to, um, you know, heal the nation 
I think that, you know, we, we got to teach our children how to be safe, how to, you know, deal in this world. But, but it's, you know, it's time for the other side to come with, like, you know, you come on and you, you be an ally. And if you're really on our side, you getting your aunt's face that, that makes those racist comments. When you're at your family gathering, you, you know, you go talk to your boss on a coworker's behalf that's having a bad day. You know, those are the type of things that, that need to be done. Because this this was not on us. I, I totally agree. You know, you can't push people and don't expect to get pushed back. You know, we've been pushing for 400 years and now it's time for us to, you know, stand up for ourselves and make some change. If we don't make change, we're going to force change. You know, if you're not going to take it kindly, we're going to force it, we're going to make it happen. And then I'll, I'll come back to Ant, you know, you know, your last remarks and, Knowing that you are a pastor and, you know, I kind of keep leaning on that, knowing that you're a pastor and you've been leading people and you in your community, I know you, you're big on doing things in your community and you being in a youthful level, you know, being a pastor of, church, of churches and, and, and being in those communities. How in the community can you continue to push our push our young kids to get out and understand and give them the knowledge to be able to protect themselves and defend themselves from, you know, racist acts that are happening out there right now? Um, one of the bigger, biggest pieces of that is educating the young people or helping them get educated on what their options are. Recognizing that the option may not necessarily always be to fight with um, a weapon that's a gun or a knife or their hands, but weaponizing their mind and fighting that way and recognizing that if I burn down this 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 target that's gonna make me feel good in the moment that target's gonna use their insurance or whatever capital they have to rebuild um, but there's more of a lasting impact if I go and I burn down a system intellectually if I burn down the system by educating myself infiltrating um, the, the 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 boardroom of target and saying, I'm not just gonna burn down the store, I'm gonna position myself in a place where I can have a voice and a level of influence where I can break the system rather than breaking just part of the process. And again, I, I really think that the generation, the, the, the people that are in our generation, the generation are coming behind us. One of the greatest assets or weapons that we have is our innovative spirit. We can create stuff, we can come up with stuff. We find ways to work and, and to make so many things work. Think about how many people are making livings now off of just selling t-shirts and, and different things like that because they're finding ways to recreate something that's been around for however long. And so it's the idea of weaponizing our mind to say, let's use who we are, what we have, our creative spirits, our innovative spirits, and use that to say that's our power because if i if i go out and just fight somebody physically there's a likelihood i end up in jail now i've got a record now i can't vote all these kind of things but if i fight you intellectually even you know though i'm going to face oppression i'm going to face opposition all those kind of things if i can find a lane where i can create my own now i'm able to have a voice and use that voice and there's not a whole lot you can do to really stop me in the sense of limiting what I can do and what I can be. And so one of my missions, not just with my kids, but with people that I interact with is 
let's educate ourselves to figure out how we can we can build another Black Wall Street. Yeah, we learn from the history of the past one, but how do we build another? One? But how do we make it, you know, bigger than just this place in Oklahoma? How do we make this a global thing? How do we, you know, um, leverage the fact that we we have influencers in so many different spaces, entertainment, athletics, politics, or whatever, to come together and and, and to build something that it is harder to tear down. And that's hard. It's definitely easier said than done, but it takes being willing to have actions that are going to be lasting actions versus just being satisfied with momentary, the momentary feeling of breaking a window or all this other stuff that we kind of see going on now. I, I totally agree. You know, we got to build that infrastructure back to again. We got to right. build that infrastructure and we got to make it nice. We got to make it deep wide so if they do try to burn it down we just have other portions pop up and we we stick together and we rebuild it and with that i'll go ahead and um i asked the i asked the pastor to lead us off into the to the night with a nice um prayer kind of you know get us in and through these tough times if you don't mind no problem uh father we thank you for the conversation tonight it's been robust it's been in depth it's been in many ways emotional um, but God is, is, is necessary. And Father, we thank you that uh, we have the opportunity to sit in this space, have these conversations. But also we thank you, oh God, that there's so much more potential that is there that is untapped. God, the future would be bleak if we've hit the end of our resources. But God, because of the fact that we know that there's so much more that you can do through us and in uh, our culture and in our people, we're excited about what can happen. So Father, our prayer is this. Help us to realize who we are. Help us to realize fully as a people who you've created us to be, what you've placed on the inside of us. But God, we also pray that you would deal with those that would seek to oppose and oppress us, oh God. Father, we pray that you would give us a spirit to stand and fight with our physical bodies, but also with our uh, minds and with our spirits of God, recognizing that uh, your word is true for those of us who believe it, and that uh, even when weapons are formed, they will not prosper when we have our faith in you. So God, we say we're tired. We're sick of having these type of conversations after something has happened, after one of our brothers or our sisters have been killed. But God, we pray that after we get through the weariness that we're feeling now, that we will stand stronger and more energized and focused on dealing with the fight ahead. So I pray for our, my dear brothers who are on this call. I pray that you would cover us, keep us, keep our families, and give us the will and the energy to do what needs to be done. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 I, I appreciate you guys as always. Uh, Reverend Miller, you know, we go, I know I call him Ant, but he's Reverend Miller out to the people. Nah, it, is fine, bro. it was a wonderful, a, a wonderful uh, prayer there. And we're going to end off on a great note. And I appreciate you, boy, as always, for coming through. I know it's late for you guys over there. And um, I, until next time, you know, holla. We'll see you on the next one. All right. Peace out, man. I really hope you guys enjoyed this episode. If you'd like to grab some merch, canvas prints for your home of office, or see the full link video from this episode, please visit dovision.com. 
Follow me on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at DoVisionSF. Send me an email of someone you'd like to hear on the podcast at DoVisionSF at gmail.com. Also, please join the DoVision Club at patreon.com forward slash DoVision for early access to content and a behind-the-scenes look at some of the episodes. While you're listening, don't forget to hit the subscribe button and comment on the podcast as well as my YouTube channel. And turn on those notifications so you'll be notified each and every time I drop a new episode. Thanks for listening, and remember, it's collaboration over competition. Until next time, holla at your boy. Thank <laughs> you.